Welcome to Movement Memos, a truth out podcast about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, Kelly Hayes. The Trump years have been an era of cruelty, repression, and catastrophe. Today, that era will finally come to an end, and a new administration will begin. Removing Trump was one of the great moral and political imperatives of our time, and I am grateful to the everyday people who made it happen. To everyone who fought Trump, I thank you. To everyone who survived the violence he inflicted, I am so glad you made it through. But we know that hundreds of thousands of people did not survive the violence of the Trump administration, and I hope we hold their memories close in the coming days, and that we demand safety for those who are still in danger. One of the lingering dangers we face in the wake of the Trump administration is the wrath of Trump's violent supporters, some of whom attacked the Capitol on January 6th in a failed attempt to create a fascist autocratic state. So what does the threat of right-wing violence look like as we transition into the Biden era? To help answer that question, I talked with my friend Shane Burley on Sunday about the future of far-right violence in the U.S. and what we can do about it. Shane is a Truth Out contributor, a regular guest on the show, and author of the book, Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It. I hope you will find our conversation as helpful as I did. Shane Burley, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on again. How are you doing today, friend? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for all of this to be over someday. Well, the last time you were on the show was October 30th, and the episode was called Mass Protest is Coming and the Cops are on Trump's Side. So <laughs> I guess we kind of called it. Yeah, we did. And a lot of people did, uh, <laughs> which is why it's so frustrating. Um, all of these you know, punchy op-eds wondering how we didn't see it coming. Absolutely. On this show alone, we've had you, Sarah Kenzier, and Ajaris Dixon breaking it down for folks, and I have certainly had a few things to say about the subject as well. So my first question is, how did people wind up so shocked? Because it was all out there. Yeah, I know. I mean, a number of reporters talked about this in advance. I think Robert Evans was one of them, where he was doing coverage on these far-right message boards and, and, and social media where they're literally saying, we're going to take guns and storm the Capitol. I mean, it was so blatant. Um, and we can look at the pattern of the last four years, and we can see this happening in cities around the country, escalating in D.C. specifically in the last couple months. So this idea that we couldn't see it coming has to negate, you know, thousands of voices, all kinds of experience, all of anti-fascism as a concept, and really just think that that the threat of the far right is one that's sort of mitigated by electoralism and the conditions of the capital, as if the capital itself is the center of some kind of pure democracy that can't be actually penetrated because, you know, Trump and Trumpism is so silly and, and kind of um, on its way out. And instead, what we need to start thinking about is what's the long-term effect of Trump's mass movement? Biden is going to be seen by a pretty substantial population as a totally illegitimate president that was coming in with the support of some kind of insurrectionary cabal army. Um, that's really frightening, you know. One thing I think is distinct about what's happening right now is not necessarily the ideas of the people, but the mass nature of it. I mean, we're talking about really profound conspiracies 
stop the steal, for example, that requires a really deep level of conspiracy thinking, but it's happening on millions and millions of people. This is a scale we've never seen before. Um, so it's hard to even conceptualize what it means that, that we watched millions and millions of people go through a mass radicalization event in 2020 and are now kind of prepared to see the state and everything as captured by this kind of um, spectacular, fantastic uh, cabal of uh, pedophiles or Antifa or whoever. As of Sunday, when we're recording this, uh, 32 members of law enforcement from 15 states, including one prosecutor, had been identified as having attended the Stop the Steal rally, which culminated in a raid on the Capitol. On social media, Thomas Robertson, one of two Rocky Mount Virginia police officers who was charged with playing a role in the Capitol riot, said, CNN and the left are just mad because we actually attacked the government, who is the problem, and not some random small business. The right, in one day, took the fucking U.S. Capitol. Keep poking us. In 2006, the FBI warned that white supremacists were working to infiltrate local police departments in the United States. Some people take issue with statements like that, given that U.S. policing is a white supremacist apparatus. So it's kind of like saying, I've infiltrated my apartment. But I do think we need to be able to name strategic distinctions in terms of strategic infiltration versus racist people who are motivated by their own individual motives and desires. In 2009, the Department of Homeland Security warned that white supremacists were actively recruiting former members of the U.S. military and called it the biggest domestic terrorism threat in the United States. No one in government proceeded to treat it as such, but those trends were identified over a decade ago and discussed at the highest levels of government. The violence that took place in the Capitol could not have occurred without the complicity and active participation of law enforcement. But what we are likely staring down here in response to these events is a new round of anti-terror legislation that will expand the surveillance state and create new modes of criminalization just as the Patriot Act led to the targeting of Muslim communities and environmental and animal rights activists. The FBI has already been palling around with the public, asking for our help identifying the Capitol Raiders, which they obviously do not need. And one of the primary demands we are seeing from the public is that the Capitol Raiders be referred to as terrorists, as though that will somehow transform the situation in a positive way. So what are your thoughts watching this sort of pro-criminalization free-for-all we're witnessing in spite of the fact that the police played a major role here? Yeah, yeah, so there's a lot here. I mean, I think that the first is that I think people, I actually kind of, I sympathize to a degree with the wanting to call this terrorism and wanting to single these people out as insurrectionaries and, and to hype it up simply because we've seen a year of hyperbolic accusations against Antifa and Black Lives Matter, calling them terrorists, insurrectionaries, and so on. So people like the ability to throw that back. And I kind of get why that feels good at the gut level. The problem with that is, like you mentioned, anytime we create increased uh, criminalization, it further marginalizes the marginalized. And that's just a pattern about the inequalities of law enforcement that we are not going to get rid of through casual reforms and social progress. I mean, they're really deeply laid in the system. So if you're increasing these sort of terrorism legislation, it's going to affect marginalized people who are victimized in the system already uh, because of deeply laid racism 
um, and bigotries that that lie at a structural level in in all of our, all of law enforcement. So, like looking at this as a, a problem that has a law enforcement solution misses the track of what the problem actually is and what actual solutions to that look like. I think again, if we're talking about this as the problem is the threat they have to the Capitol building or the threat they have to democracy, we again, I think, are missing the problem here. I, I wrote something else for Proteon magazine where I talked about like the Capitol was stormed decades ago. I mean, it was stormed during the Reagan Revolution. I mean, they they tore apart social safety nets, they built up border walls. I mean, the Capitol has been stolen. And as if our democracy isn't a place that it hasn't been constantly under threat. This march on the Capitol, for example, is not the flashpoint of the attack on democracy. It's a flashpoint on their willingness to engage to get violence against other people. And I think the way that they see law enforcement is important for us to understand more so than the act of the Capitol. And so I think when we're thinking about whether or not, you know, it's like ter labeling with terrorists or, or terrorism legislation that's going to be a solution, instead, looking at their actual violence against people is actually I think what we need to start thinking about and law enforcement terrorism legislation is not a solution to that community organizations um, really strong viral communities that can defend themselves that is actually the solution to it and we can't just keep looking for law enforcement solutions to really complicated social problems on the one hand but also just the, the problems of, a, of an armed far right um, those need interventions on every level and law enforcement is not the one that is ever proved effective in doing that so and then on the other uh, piece that you mentioned I think you know I was interviewing Vicky Osterweil about her book uh, in defense of looting and she, she brought this this point up that I think is really salient is that historically white vigilante groups like the ones who's from the capitals have been allowed to sort of do what they want as a way of method of social control and police often either work in collaboration with them or, or stand down during it. And it was really more in the war during the war on drugs that the police sort of took charge on this in as much as they had the authority to basically run you know, roughshod over communities of color as much as possible. They essentially took the role that the white vigilantes had before in social control. They are both the police and these sort of social enforcers using extreme violence in communities of color. And now we're actually seeing, in a way, the sort of return of white vigilantes to the mix and the police essentially either treating with kid gloves or standing down or sometimes even participating. And so I think, and that seems really shocking to people, but actually that there's a historical continuity there. Like that police in general, both because structurally the way that policing works and the people who are in policing do not deal with the far right in a way that's particularly effective. There are obviously times when far right groups and fascist groups, white supremacist, white power movement specifically, goes after law enforcement and the state. And so there's not like they're always in perfect alignment. But the reality is, is that policing is about maintaining power and social control. And in white supremacist vigilantes are essentially just the vanguard of that. And so there is a conducive uh, level there. When you go into police departments, and this was seen really clearly during the like the mid uh, 2020 protests in places like Portland, is that they were filled with um, nativist conspiracy mongering about the left wing protesters, and that that kind of internal culture has gives them an alignment with groups like the Proud Boys. Um, it's it's really clear when you see events happening where there's a, you know a, a moderate sized Proud Boy contingent and a much larger left wing contingent. The Proud Boys come with guns and weapons, attack a bunch of leftist protesters, and then the police follow up and attack the protesters again. So it's it's a, such a discernible pattern that we need to expect that that kind of thing is going to happen and not rely on that law enforcement barrier as something that's going to keep us safe necessarily.
We have seen Biden joining calls for new domestic terror legislation, but we are also seeing Republicans seize the moment. As Liana First Arai recently reported in Truthout, Republican lawmakers in five states are using the unrest at the Capitol to propel anti-protest laws that they claim will prevent the kind of mob violence that we saw at the Capitol. But legal experts are in agreement that these laws would do nothing to curb white supremacist violence. What they would do is empower police to crack down on their favorite targets, black activists, immigration activists, climate justice organizers, and others. And these laws would further empower prosecutors to seek draconian sentences when prosecuting protesters. So what people are really doing when they push the idea of terrorism, an idea that's primary function in the United States is racist fear-mongering, they are aiding those Republican efforts. Because instead of having complex discussions about what we are up against and how to end it, we are talking in very general terms that we know will be weaponized against vulnerable people. It reminds me of like a bigger complicated issue inside of organizing that I think, I, I think sometimes like we neglect for immediate gain and sort of like robbing Peter to pay Paul. I, I was, I, I had this conversation with someone recently about a, a, a housing campaign that I was involved in many, many years ago and how we were using rhetoric about empty houses. It was like anti-eviction work. And it was basically using rhetoric about empty houses about how, you know, they become like drug dens and they drive down the neighborhood and people point out, well, you're kind of throwing folks struggling with addiction or folks who, who use drugs under the bus in your rhetoric of that. And so what, what are we actually here for? Are we here just about the issue of housing or is housing part of a, a larger um, movement towards equality and justice? And so when you're talking about confronting white supremacists, it's really easy to say like, hey, let's lock them up for the FBI. But in doing so, you're collaborating and participating with the FBI that will also go after other social movements that are going after communities of color. So, I mean, you have to say like, do we get really get a benefit from this or are we actually hurting our long-term social goals? I am just going to briefly interrupt us with a pre-recorded fundraising appeal because Truthout is a nonprofit news publication that has thus far survived the decimation of independent news. But we can't create independent news on a corporate landscape without help from readers and listeners like you. So if you're enjoying the show, please consider heading to truthout.org to make a donation today. So in terms of what we're up against there are a lot of players involved. We have white supremacist militias, the Proud Boys, Trump's otherwise unaffiliated fandom, and much more. We have seen some convergence of these forces under Trump, which to a lot of people just looks like one big blur of scary racism. I do think it's important to understand some of the distinctions between these groups, particularly as we move into a new era when we may not see them acting in concert as much. Can you say a bit about the different groups and types of groups that we should be concerned about? So you have a number of kind of contingents. You have the militia folks and folks involved with patriot organizations, these are the Oath Keepers, 3% are sometimes regional militias. And these have you know decades back of traditions of these kind of far-right organizing in rural areas that have started to creep into urban areas in the Trump years. You have the Proud Boys, the actual Proud Boys organization, which has been out in really big force in a lot of these cities um, and have had the sort of like street policing behavior of attacking counter protesters. That's almost their entire um, kind of reason to be there. Um, you have 
what's driving a lot of people out, which is basically conspiracy movements that have hit like a kind of fever pitch in the last year, uh, QAnon being the most upfront version, but to a degree, the anti-mask protesters have another kind of wind of it, people who are calling into question the severity of COVID. And those people are coming out in one of the largest kind of factions. And they've actually had a good year of warming themselves up to these kinds of rallies. So Stop the Steal really comes in continuity with the anti-mask protests. The rhetoric is certainly different, but the personalities really aren't. And what's been happening over the last 18 months or a year is that people have been sort of pushing their own personal boundaries at these rallies about what should be acceptable, whether how much violence they're willing to do, how complicational they're willing to be. And then Trump is basically calling them into action. So we're seeing a really huge kind of push for people to take action. There are open white supremacist groups there. People have seen them there. And, and high-profile organizers, Baked Alaska, Nick Fuentes, or some others. But also a lot of the alt-right is staying home on this. They abandoned Trump a couple of years ago. They think that this is a... Uh, an FBI operation to get their people arrested and they don't want to be a part of it. The ones that are going there are likely basically cynically just trying to recruit people to those sorts of things. But what's happening here in general, and, and what I actually think is a way more frightening in some ways, is that these are a kind of a large mass of people who haven't been facilitated by formal organizations and are acting in incredibly desperate ways. And that kind of flashpoint desperation is what leads to like seemingly impulsive acts of violence. And that's the kind of cult climate we're starting to see. I want to talk a bit about what's happening psychologically right now to Trump supporters, because he summoned a mob to D.C., riled them up for a riot, told them they were beautiful and that he loved them, and then threw them directly under the bus. I observed some outcry and confusion among right-wing folks after Trump denounced the people who raided the Capitol, but it seemed like all of that got swept away pretty quickly by conspiracy theories and fear-mongering about Black-led protests. So where do you think Trump's fringe supporters are right now in terms of how they're internalizing these events? Yeah, I, I think my colleague Sarah Hightower made a comment when I was interviewing her a couple of weeks ago about the sort of traumatization that's happening with pieces of Trump's base. There's sort of, we're experiencing a mass traumatization event based on falsehoods, based on conspiracy narratives that aren't true, but had they been true, would be incredibly traumatic to experience. So like QAnon, for example, or Pizzagate, those kinds of narratives, obsessively believing those sorts of things is a very upsetting experience that pushes people into a, a trauma state. You know, they're essentially giving themselves PTSD over uh, imagined stories. Um, and this is happening in ways the, in a way that's affecting people generationally. It's happening in entire large swaths of the country right now that are breaking with consensus reality in any way and doing so based on an emotional connection to Donald Trump. It's not based on some kind of factual like quid pro quo, Trump's going to do something for them. It's not really like that anymore. Now it's about emotional bonding and identity and believing something that's sort of in revolt against rationality and I think that that's actually speaking to some, some really profound deep needs in folks, but also speaking to years of a breakdown between kind of common shared experiences. And so the far right that's out there now is less prone to ideological cohesion and more prone to just these impulsive kind of storytelling. There, there's this kind of term that I, I've seen started to use a lot, which is uh, some people are saying, a lot of times when I'm interviewing people at far right rallies, if I interview like people at probably rallies and stuff, they'll oftentimes tell me kind of conspiracy stories and they'll just kind of um, preface it with, well, some people are saying, 
it's sort of the conspiracy without even the narrative. There's been such a kind of breakdown on a cohesive understanding of the surrounding world that it really lends itself to kind of looking towards demagoguery as a, as a real solution to their problems. And so that's why I think coalescing around Donald Trump, around the false narrative of the stolen election and stuff, is one that's going to take them past the election period and give them kind of a reason to be out there. Now that Donald Trump is going to be out of the office and the narrative is that he is out of office illegitimately, it gives them a defining cause. They now live in a, a stolen country, a failed state, where they're the renegade truth tellers. And that's the kind of bonding that can last for years. One thing that a good friend of mine said when it became clear that a police officer had died in the Capitol raid was that we were about to see how little the right really cares about police. Because we have seen concern for police and respect for police carried as a banner by Trump supporters. And while many of us realized that what they were really cheering on was anti-black violence and really lynchings carried out by police, I'm not sure the police themselves have understood that. Because the support they have received has been so enthusiastic, and it's not just symbolic, it's material. But when we see these videos of black people being murdered, and the videos go viral, and the cops GoFundMe gets $100,000 in one night or whatever, those GoFundMes are never about those cops, or people thinking that what they did was justified. It's just a way for racist white people to sort of retroactively participate in a lynching. Those videos are the lynching postcards of our time, just like the ones they used to sell at gas stations as souvenirs during Jim Crow. So it's been interesting to see the lack of concern on the right for the officers who were attacked, because they never really cared about the police any more than they care about the flag. People will often point out that conservatives attack Kaepernick for supposedly disrespecting the flag when white people regularly distort and pervert the American flag in all sorts of ways. But now we're seeing points of friction and physical violence between white supremacist protesters and police, which is a bit unusual, but also not shocking, because right-wingers don't really care about police, and police don't hold any true allegiance to anyone outside themselves. Because, as we've talked about before, police don't really see themselves as being attached to communities so much as existing in opposition to communities to maintain their own impunity and authority at all times. That usually puts police in alignment with white vigilantes, but in the chaos of the Capitol riot, we saw both collusion and conflict. I do think, yeah, I think it's worthwhile to think of police as a class of their own, to a degree, and not having perfect alignment with other forces necessarily in all times. I think that one, one of the reasons that police actually make themselves vulnerable to far-right attack is that they can't believe it. It's almost like th that allegiance has, will leave them open to be killed. So it's when, like, for example, you see, like, the boogaloo killings of police officers or the sort of, I mean, there was other militia ones that happened closer to, like, the Bundy standoff. It, it seemed like they were sort of slack-jawed about this, like unable to, to kind of conceptualize what to do, how to deal with it, that kind of thing. So I think there is like a reckoning probably happening in police departments about now it looks like this movement that was doing like back the blue rallies and was literally fighting leftists in the streets in the name of police are now attacking them with guns, you know? But I, I doubt that it's going to be like police out for revenge. I mean, I, I really doubt that there's going to be this profound change in the policing structure. I think, you know, again, in, in policing itself is not always, even as a class of its own, it's not always like singular interests. And I think, for example, federal investigators 
take on far-right groups in a much different way than local police departments do. And so I think there's going to be a lot of disjointedness there. And I think also, for example, like the police officers and staff that are actually involved in far-right movements are, again, also kind of um, having internal clashes with feds and other things. And I think also, for example, the way that the federal law enforcement is seen in the era of Biden is going to be much different, too. So I actually think there's going to be a lot of internal clashes there. There's going to be a lot of kind of un kind of a, 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 a shaky ground for how to actually deal with far-right movements that are continuing, particularly when all evidence points that they will be increasingly violent because of the desperate situation they believe themselves to be in. While we have seen some counter-protests, many of us are avoiding crowds and large events, especially with the new strain of COVID-19 spreading so rapidly. But conditions on the ground will change over the next year, and we also know that every situation is different, and that some people are going to be moved to take action before the pandemic is over, either to confront fascism or for a host of other reasons. But in a more general sense, over the next four years, there will be anti-fascists and other everyday people pushing back against white supremacist organizing and white supremacist attacks. In addition to COVID safety protocols, what do those people need to know? I think that people are, are going to come out and counter demonstrate these far right rallies. And I support people doing that. Um, I think that the, that there is going to be that, that those are dangerous situations and people should be aware of their dangerous situations and should coordinate safety plans and stuff. If you want to be at demonstrations at state capitals around the country, I think that particularly smaller state capitals are really vulnerable spaces. Olympia, Washington, Salem, Oregon, there have been, really violent rallies recently. And for example, in Olympia, people have been shot. I, I think those are the kind of spaces that um, concern me the most. I think people kind of going in and out of those spaces um, that maybe look to far-right people as someone that could be an agitator of some sort, that, that there's a, obviously, I think, the issue of being kind of cornered alone. So I don't think people should be going places alone. I think the press are incredibly vulnerable right now in a way that's uncommon. And I think being visibly a reporter is an incredibly dangerous thing at these rallies. Um, that's escalated dramatically in the last few months, way past what it used to be. I used to just go into far-right rallies and no one would bother me. I would even tell them if I was reporting for like a left-leading publication, didn't matter. You know, I was just a reporter, they were fine. You know, they might make fun of me or something, but it was totally uh, pretty neutral. Uh, now when I'm going, it's like I'm getting like surrounded by guys with guns. It's a much different situation and people are being attacked pretty openly, uh, including just mainstream reporters. So I think that's an incredibly dangerous spot to be in right now. And then I think, again, sort of what feels like revenge attacks, I think, are an important thing to watch out for because what's happening now is that the, the violence from a lot of the far-right groups, either explicitly Proud Boys or supporters in the kind of surrounding spheres around the, in the, uh, the intersecting circles, basically, um, present all their violence as defensive. And so even when they're obviously doing offensive violence, they send it to single out kind of high profile or people they believe to be high profile activists um, for violence under the idea that that's defending the community somehow, or at least under the branding of that, that's how they, they, they um, present it. And so like, I think, you know, keeping an eye on people, uh, making sure people stay safe and coordinated, particularly around the inauguration day and the days afterwards. I don't think that the major centers are going to be where the biggest worry should be right now. Total agreement. What are you most worried about? I'm, I'm mo most worried about the escalated 
emotional space inside the far right rallies where they could engage in and seemingly impulsive acts of violence against counter demonstrators. You know, the, the, I think sometimes because what people say in those spaces are so absurd and so ridiculous, we believe that they don't believe it and that that's just a justification. But the reality is that they often do believe the conspiracy mongering. They actually do believe that Antifa and Black Lives Matter and Joe Biden are coordinating to, to murder them somehow. Like this, these kind of beliefs are, they actually do come through. I mean, I've been in enough of these rallies where they literally are saying that the counter demonstrators are sacrificing children and without all dead sincerity. So I, I think that that kind of emotional space at a heightened moment like the inauguration could lead to these acts of violence that they even may truly believe were defensive in some way, that they may think that they're actually doing something to stop violence that's about to happen and people opening fire, people pulling out guns and stuff. That kind of thing, I think, is really frightening. I think targeted attacks on journalists and activists is a very real thing. It's to say it's likely is to, to, to predict something. But what I'm saying is it happens at every one of these events and it will happen that day as well. And so I think that's an, an something to be, um, that's something that really frightens me because we're seeing things like, you know, pipe and baton head attacks, those leading to traumatic brain injuries. It's happening at a really mass scale right now with so many attacks. That I think is really, really frightening. Um, so I think that is the kind of violence that's very interpersonal uh, in nature that concerns me the most as opposed to like a mass terror action, which I don't think is uh, completely impossible, but it's not exactly the pattern that's as dependable from the evidence we have. We have a very dependable historical record right now of what the violence tends to look like. So what does a movement to stop the far right look like? I mean, I think in a way we have we have all the tools. I, I think I say this every time, you know, we have the tools. <laughs> um, I think we know how to organize people and we know how to do it in a really mass and semi-spontaneous way. I don't mean totally spontaneous. Organizing is not spontaneous. But, but the ability to react quickly and to kind of pick up the tools when they're needed. We had a lot of this happen in 2020. We had uh, mutual aid form in response to the coronavirus. Then we had the, the BLM protests at a scale, again, also unprecedented. So in a way, we actually had our own mass radicalization event, right, that happened across the country and required the creation of really profound infrastructure and also having intersectional analysis about white supremacy and, in a way, uh, figuring out how to defend ourselves from uh, these vigilante groups that were hitting people all around the country. And then you had things like forest fires and stuff where people also had to come together and, and figure these sort of solutions out. And then the violence around, uh, around the election. So I think actually there has been sort of a, a forced training that has happened on organizing. And I think what's going to be sort of required is one, the people that came out in response to Trump in the first place have to continue to come out. I actually am sort of optimistic about that because no one seems to believe that, that Biden's going to solve anyone. No one at all. I've not seen that anywhere. Um, but there's going to have to be a kind of consistent response. I mean, the reality is, is that when the far right comes out enough times, a large movement usually does form to stop them. But when they start to peter out or there's some signal that they're in decline, people tend to stay home. But the only thing that actually forces that off the edge is to keep coming out and to keep making it 
um, impossible for them to organize. That is what creates the long-term uh, pattern there. And I think, again, what's going to be the most important thing is that people create alliances, they create coalitions, they work together, they don't just focus on one issue, but they have the ability to coordinate all of these simultaneously so that when the far right comes out, you're, you have a giant army of people that can confront it and those people stay involved in organizing outside of that as well. I see a lot of potential in what's been stirred in the last year, and I am hopeful. But I do think the left has a long way to go in terms of being willing to work with who's there. I know I often talk about prison organizing, but that's really because those organizers have shown us what it looks like to understand that your survival and your experience of the world are on the line, and to organize alongside people you would never otherwise have anything to do with, because you really understand that severity. I think that's what a lot of leftists and liberals did not have going for them during the Trump administration, and I think it hampered us in real ways. If not for COVID-19, I am not sure we would be in a state of transition right now at all. And I really feel like most people in this country will never appreciate how close we came to becoming a fascist autocracy, because their faith in institutions is going to be reaffirmed by this transition. So I hope we can counter that. And I think to some extent, the Biden administration will counter that by letting people down spectacularly in the coming months. But disillusionment obviously doesn't generate constructive action all by itself. So I hope we will be ready to do the kind of work you're describing, of building those coalitions, of talking to people, not people who hate us or don't respect our humanity, but people who we aren't in perfect alignment with, who we might not otherwise connect with. Because leftists are really good at talking about how the whole world is at stake and less skilled at acting like the whole world is at stake. And all of the people whose suffering and abuse we raged against under Trump, all of those people are still in danger, both from the government, which was never on their side, and from Trump's minions, who are out for revenge. But circling back to the moment we're in, the new variant of COVID-19 that is tearing through the UK is 40 to 80% more transmissible than the strains that have brought us to our knees over the last year. So we're talking about a deteriorating situation right now, both in terms of escalating mass death and a whole lot of displacement looming. How do you think these disasters will impact our political struggle against the far right? I think, I think the experience of mourning and the experience of sort of the loss of, of 2020 has sort of changed the equations for a lot of people. Um, and I think that there's a certain sense of immediacy about confronting what's happening. But I think it's also bound us together in really complex ways. Um, I, I, you know, I may be hopelessly optimistic about this, but I actually do think that these experiences have, have created a really sense of bonding about what it means to survive and kind of confront the problems that are happening and that we have to do it together. And so I'm hoping that particularly when coming out of well, hopefully it will be mass vaccination and everything. Coming out of that, the hope is that this is going to create a really bonded sense of community coming in the spring and the summer so that we actually have the capacity to do this and that there feels like that drive is really strong inside of us to do it. I think there's also a real hunger for returning to community that we feel like we may have been lost or we may have been kind of uh, lapsed from because of those barriers. And so I think that's really, really critical as we come into like the spring and summer that we're able to kind of launch ourselves into a, a real sense of, of shared experience. I hope so. And I strongly believe in that possibility. 
But as someone who's done a lot of organizing around grief work and memorialization during the COVID crisis, I will say that I think that collective grief is still a missing piece for a lot of people, and that I don't think we are going to get to the place you're describing until we build more connection around that. I think there's a lot of grief work and memorializing that has not happened, in part because people tend to recoil, because these things are painful, and because people don't have their bearings. People in the U.S. have been living through a nationwide mass casualty situation for almost a year now. And during that time, we were also experiencing the drama of a presidential race, including a Democratic primary that set a lot of people against each other. Quite pointlessly, I will say, as someone who was engaged in those exchanges, and with so much focus on Trump's attacks on the people and the environment and his COVID response, which was really an extended act of mass murder, I think some people have forgotten how to take a deep breath. Some days I am one of those people. But I will say that when I do see people who are processing grief in collectivity, who are holding memorial services, not just for one person, but for the community, these are people who tend to be involved in organizing in some form or another, whether they organize with a mutual aid collective or through a membership organization or through their church. People who are already concerning themselves with the survival and well-being of other people, those are the people who I see building bonds around what's happened and potentially building the solidarity we will need to collectively heal and translate some of that energy into action against the far right and against neoliberalism in the name of what we really need, which is a more life-giving society. And I do just want to remind people as we come toward the end here that collective grief is anti-fascist. Acknowledging the severity of what we have lost and why we have lost it, naming the mass sacrifice of disabled people and black and brown people and imprisoned people, these are things that have to happen and they are acts of resistance because when we grieve together, we reclaim the value of our humanity. And if you're not sure what to do in this moment and you want to make a statement against fascism but do not want to tangle with racists, I highly recommend carrying out some sort of small action, whether it's wheat pasting or creating a shrine or a small group vigil with your pod that honors those we've lost, because collective memory is a battlefield, and any ground we cede will be seized by the far right. I mean, I think building on what you just said, I, you know, surviving is a political act, and we have to do that together. I mean, one of the, the realities is that there is competing visions for what like a social space will look like? What, what does our society look like? And coming through mass trauma and what we've done to survive in that period of mass trauma is about forging horizontal connections and building community and building strong sense of mutual aid and solidarity. And so doing that, doing it together is part of building that new future. So it is a kind of an act of defiance and one that's really incredibly important um, not just for kind of the social reproduction of social movements, but just of uh, redefining our kind of social reality and one that's against the kind of cruelty that we're seeing in the Trump movement. Well, thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining us today, Shane. I, I always love our conversations. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets.
Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.